Good morning and welcome to Connections for this Friday, February 13th, 2015. I'm your host, Liz Lane. Marriage was in the news this past week uh, as Alabama attempted to be the 38th state to legalize same-sex marriage. Uh, The controversy erupted when state Supreme Court State Supreme Court Judge Roy Moore ordered state probate judges to refrain from issuing same-sex marriage licenses, openly defying a federal court order that had challenged and overturned Alabama's ban on same-sex marriage. A federal judge ruled on Wednesday ordering probate judges to go ahead and issue those licenses, and the situation is uh, unfolding as counties struggle to uh, adopt the federal order or to comply with the uh, the state of Alabama's ban. And, of course, that has brought the whole same-sex marriage uh, back keenly into the forefront, of course, and overlaying that with uh, the civil rights uh, struggles that uh, went on in the South long after a federal law had encouraged integration. But tomorrow's also Valentine's Day, and uh, we thought it would be appropriate to uh, talk about the shifting state of all marriage in the U.S. today, a shift that is both social and demographic, but also deeply economic. And marriage, in fact, is often referred to as a growing casualty of the widening inequality in the broader economy. I have two guests this morning. Stephanie Kuntz literally wrote the book on marriage. She's the author of A History of Marriage, How Love Conquered Marriage, The Way We Never Were, and most recently, a book called A Quiet Stirring, which looks at the early days of this country's second wave of feminism in the 1960s. Stephanie Kuntz is a professor of history at Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, and she is the director of research and public education at the Council on Contemporary Families. And we will be joined with Stephanie in just a couple of minutes. Uh, We're also going to be joined at the top of the hour by Claire Huntington. Uh, She's a professor of law at Fordham Law School in New York, City, and she's also the author most recently of the book, Failure to Flourish, How Law Undermines Family, and that is put out by the Oxford University Press. So we're going to run a couple of announcements while we're waiting to join our guest, first guest this morning, Stephanie Kuntz. Marking the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X, Alternative Radio features African-American historian Michael Eric Dyson on Malcolm X and the politics of race. That's Alternative Radio, Wednesday evening at 6, right here on Community Radio, KGNU, Boulder, Denver. KGNU listeners make smart investments. They invest their time, their passion, and their money. Make an investment in these important customers for your business. Become a KGNU program sponsor. For more information, call 720-340-0767 or visit us online at kgnu.org. KGNU is different. It's a different type of radio. It's put together by a station with a small paid staff and over 300 volunteers. Our volunteers have a large part in decision-making, programming, and on-air content. And you can be a part of that, too. You can donate money. You can come down to the station and volunteer your time and energy. This ensures that you hear the issues that are important to our community. 
that you hear the political and cultural voices that are oftentimes overlooked in mainstream media. And to do this, it's important that you subscribe to the station. Call now, 303-449-4885, or subscribe online at kgnu.org. Thank you. And good morning. If you're just joining us, you are listening to the Connections program on KGNU Boulder, Denver. Our topic this morning is the changing state of marriage in the United States today. Stephanie Kuntz wrote the book on marriage. She's the author of A History of Marriage, How Love Conquered Marriage, and also the book The Way We Never Were. Stephanie Kuntz is a history professor at Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, and she's the director of research and public education at the Council on Contemporary Families. And she joins us this morning from the West Coast. Good morning, Stephanie. Thanks so much for being here. Good morning. My pleasure. So uh, a couple of years ago, you challenged the view, and this is a, a really a purely numbers uh, view, demographic, the Pew Research uh, Council put out a report and concluded that marriage was actually in serious decline. Uh, the numbers uh, suggested that, and, and you debunked that, uh, noting that a lot of the numbers upon which that, I, that idea and that conclusion were based had not accounted for the later age that men and women both get married. Uh, however, as a proportion of the adult population, an increasing number of adults are in fact unmarried, and many more might not ever marry if projections, uh, current projections hold true. So I'd like you to start with an update on those numbers and where the trend falls right now. Well, it's important to put a little historical perspective on this because everybody compares it against 1960 uh, when there were more people married at younger ages than ever before. In American history, the average woman married before she was old enough to um, illegally have a glass of champagne at her wedding. Uh, you know, everybody married, uh, and they married very young. So nowadays, the age of marriage has spread out much more, and marriage is much more optional. Uh, certainly, I think it's absolutely true that we're seeing uh, back in the 1950s, an all-time high of 95% of the population married at some point. I think that's probably going to go down to 80, uh, 80%. Um, most people will get married, but there's one kernel of truth, not in the hysteria about it, but in the uh, in a really qualitative change that we have to come to terms with, not only as a society, but in our own personal emotions. People spend much more of their lives outside marriage. Uh, first of all, because the age of marriage is rising. Secondly, because there is higher divorce. Uh, and third, because with the extension of a lifespan, if you get divorced or your partner dies, you have a lot more time uh, to live outside marriage. And we find that elders increasingly cohabit instead of get married. So you can no longer say that marriage is the main institution, uh, as we used to assume that it was, that would organize all of people's life transitions and where all up, you would the only place that people incurred obligations and the only set of people you had to worry about enforcing those obligations or uh, respecting the obligations they'd taken on. We were in a whole new situation there. How would you assess the shift of society with the reality of these numbers in terms of uh, perhaps at least beginning to look at different ways to organize 
our our lives. How we build houses, for example, is is something that reflects this idea of uh, a couple and 1.6 children. Um, how how is society not responding to this, or are there pockets of uh, places in the country that um, that are? Well, uh, in, I think on the ground we've learned that we have to respond to it. For example. Uh, but lawyers and judges are beginning to realize, oh, my gosh, you know, 40 percent of cohabiting couples have kids. We can't assume that they don't uh, that they aren't committed to those kids. They don't have the right to uh, raise them well. They don't need support systems. And also that they, just like married uh, couples, don't need exit rules if one of them decides to leave. Uh, they can't leave the others destitute. So on an ad hoc basis, uh, judges, communities are beginning to come to terms with this. But as a society, we still would prefer to think, and there's a whole ideological group of people who strongly believe this, that if we just got everybody married, we wouldn't have to make any of these changes. Uh, that's nonsense, of course. I mean, a lot of the reason uh, that many people don't marry in America is precisely not, it's not the cause of poverty, it's the result of poverty and economic insecurity. And even those couples who are married are doing it in totally different ways. Back in the 50s and 60s, you could assume that if you married, um, uh, if you hired a married person, usually a man, that he would have a wife to take care of the children. Today, 70% of American children are growing up in families where every adult in the household is employed outside the home, and that the United States has the most bad Backward, non-existent work-family policies uh, in the whole industrial world. In fact, if you look around the world, the fact of our we, we share with uh, Papua New Guinea and Swaziland the fact <laughs> that we don't have paid maternity leave. <laughs> well, um, the uh, the sentence you just said a moment ago that that the declining number of marriages or the perhaps increasing number of people that cohabitate and have children. You said 40% of children are uh, being brought up in homes where the parents aren't married, that that isn't the cause of poverty, but it's actually the result of poverty. Um, can you unpack that idea? Because we talk so much and hear so much about uh, income inequality, about stagnating wages, and, and all of those truths and those facts that, that um, really are, are now indisputable um, through so, so much data. Um, we, we tend to consider those numbers and declining uh, wages in terms of, of purchase power, economic power, the ability to buy a home, which for many uh, was lost after the 2008 financial crash, which has some serious ramifications for uh, creating families that could be stable. But um, really, the economic inequality has a direct and immediate impact on marriage, and you've written and and talked about this a lot. So uh, talk about how poverty and uh, widening inequality in the broader economy is directly contributing to the decline in, uh, in marriage. Well, yes, and we have to take this back uh, more than just through the Great Recession, and because this is something that's been going on for 40 years. And what people, I think, don't understand is that poverty alone doesn't necessarily stop people from marrying. I mean, people married. Uh, the marriage rates fell down in the Great Depression. But after the Depression, um, people in the 50s, for example, married before they had um, a, a bank account and uh, you know a good house and this sort of thing. They married as a route to gaining those things. And so many social um, conservative politicians will say, well, why don't they just do that now? Because people are better off with two incomes. 
Yeah, they are in the abstract, but it's got to be two incomes that you can kind of count on. And the big difference between now and the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s is um, two, two things have, have come into play. One, I think, um, back in the 50s and 60s, we would say was bad. And another one, I think we would say was good and we'd like to get back to. The bad part was that women had absolutely almost no opportunity to earn a living wage. You know, there were help-wanted female ads. Women wages uh, remained flat and, and, in fact, relative to men's decline throughout the 50s and 60s. But for, uh, So I don't think we'd want to go back to that situation. But I think one thing one could legitimately be nostalgic for is that men faced quite a different situation. Their real wages rose uh, 4% every year, which means that they doubled uh, with uh, a man moving from age 25 to 35 doubled his real wages. A, the average 30-year-old man could buy a home on 15 to 18% of his income. So here's the calculus. If you're especially for women, and it's why, incidentally, it's women who are resisting marriage more than men uh, in low-income communities. Uh, at that point, a woman could marry almost any guy. Um, maybe he had some bad behavior and was immature, but he'd probably age out of it. And at very least, he could provide her with a home and a standard of living and support her kids in a way she never could by herself. Uh, so she was going to put up with some bad behavior, and it was certainly to her interest to hook up with a man early. Today, men still own earn more than women on average, but as men's real wages have been falling, economic insecurity has been falling, the kind of blue-collar jobs that used to allow a man to support a family are being destroyed, they're being, uh, they're, they're being slashed, their benefits are losing. So a woman has to look at this guy and say, well, I could invest in my own earnings power, and it's probably not, you know, certainly not enough to be comfortable on, but I have to balance my own earnings power against the fact that if I hook up with a guy who loses his job or misuses our resources, I'm actually going to be worse off, and we can prove this uh, with a sociological statistics that they are often worse off than if they'd stayed single and focused on their own earnings power. So, you know, the, the change of marriage, they're clearly cultural things. Back in the 1950s, people thought you were deviant, neurotic, crazy if you didn't want to get married. Now there's much more cultural acceptance of non-marriage. But we have to make a distinction between the uh, failure to the, the desire to stay single or to delay marriage, which has been helpful to many, many uh, women and men, and the inability to enter marriage, which has been a real tragedy for many low-income men and women, less educated men and women, who really need someone to share expenses for, so they often end up moving in together after a very short period of time, and whose relationships are under constant stress um, because of this economic churning and insecurity. So I think that inequality starts this whole cycle. But of course, once you get into that cycle, it's reinforced by the fact, uh, it particularly, that higher income people, highly educated people, uh, increasingly are marrying each other. Doctors don't marry nurses, they marry fellow doctors. So you have these more stable marriages with two good incomes coming in, going up against um, both single parents or um, one earner families. Even if they're married, a one earner family can't keep up. So uh, yes, there is certainly a, a feedback effect, but I think where a lot of our policymakers get it wrong is they say, let's get them married first 
and then we'll sort out those economic problems, or they say they'll sort them out because we don't want help. Uh, and I think most of the research suggests the opposite. Give people more stable jobs. Give them hope for their future. Uh, get them out of debt as they desperately think that maybe if they could go to a two-year college and often don't aren't able to complete it, and then they're much more likely to be able to sustain stable relationships. If you're just joining us, my guest in this first half an hour of this program talking about the changing state of marriage in the United States is Stephanie Kuntz, who has literally written the book on marriage. Her book, uh, A History of Marriage, How Love Conquered Marriage, is a seminal work in this area, as well as The Way We Never Were. And Stephanie will be with us until the top of the hour. If you'd like to make a comment or ask a question, you can call 303-442-4242. Stephanie, I want to go back uh, a little bit to you, uh, the calculus that you were referring to, uh, that the uh, decline in wages, the stagnation of wages, the lack of, uh, of quote-unquote blue-collar jobs, uh, traditionally high-paying, perhaps manufacturing or automotive jobs that um, men typically with just a high school diploma could go and, and earn a living wage for their family. Those many, many millions of those jobs have disappeared, as we know. But uh, thinking about, you, you referred to the calculus that uh, low-income women um, might make, and I guess I'm wondering a little bit about, it really is, is an economic calculus at the forefront of someone's thinking when they're thinking about getting married. I think it's wise if that's the case. And and I, I believe that more people should look at marriage as it is, which is really an economic partnership. Um, but I don't I don't actually, I didn't really think about that myself, and I was uh, not in my 20s when I got married. And I just, I'd like you to talk about the the love component, the nostalgia component, because that's been uh, debunked in a lot of your writings as well. But so many millions of us still have this other idea of why we would want to get married, and it's not really about economic security. Or at least I would challenge well, that that is is something that people think about so much. Well, well, I think that it's we all want to marry for love. I mean, this is a huge historic change, and um, you know we could take another program sometime to talk about uh, the contradictions of how that evolved and how the early. The, the um, definitions of love have been changing, but yes, everybody wants to marry for love. What's interesting, though, is that higher educated, um, more economically secure people have the luxury of not thinking about the economics most of the time. Although we find that that even uh, young people who are pretty good earners uh, look at each other's debt patterns, spending <laughs> patterns before they decide. It's to get smart. Married. It's a smart thing to do. But for lower-income people, there's this tremendous psychological um, press. You want to fall in love, of course, especially when you've got such terrible things else going on in your life. The idea of a romantic partner is good. And many of these people move in together very quickly. And although very few of them consciously decide, let's have a baby, this part of the love stuff is, well, maybe we won't use contraception all the time. Maybe we'll kind of roll the dice. And so you see a lot of this this love and romance coming in there. But it's interesting that precisely because they are so low income, they do have to make this kind of calculus that um, for, more fortunate Americans don't have to make. And Paula England and Kathy Eden interviewed these low income couples who had had a child, who loved, who said they loved each other, were living together, said they wanted to get married. And she said, well, what will allow you to get married? And the couples invariably said, we just need to have 
a very modest base. It's not like I want to throw a Kim Kardashian wedding, you know. It's like we want to be able to hold a wedding because that's a symbol of security. We want to be out of debt. We don't want to have to depend on anyone, whether it's government or parents or debt. And then this fairly modest financial bar, then we've got married. You know what they found out? That eight very few of those couples were able to meet that modest bar in, in today's economy. But 80% of the ones who did went on to get married. The ones who didn't um, did not get married. Uh, now, why people broke up was different. They didn't break up because they couldn't get married. They broke up very often because of bad behavior. And that's the other thing is that we forget is the tremendous stresses of uh, impoverished, low-income communities where there's violence, where there's economic insecurity. People often turn to uh, substance abuse uh, as a way of, of escaping from it, from, you know, uh, or even infidelity. It, it sort of immediately gives a rush, or they engage in illegal activities to get a little more financial uh, stability. All of those things, however, really hurt the relationship possibilities. So you get a lot of churning in these uh, communities that uh, as people look for love, but don't have the social support and the economic security to be able to sustain, to, to do a prolonged search for a good mate and sustain a stable relationship. Is, is, Marriage just harder today because of economic stress is just the management of a household and two jobs, maybe four jobs, as we know many people have more than one. Is it just is is the economics so overwhelming and so, um, you know, there's it's so lean for so many people who aren't making ends meet that just uh, spending time on a relationship or even considering uh, how that's going. It's just it's just harder today. Do you agree with that? Well, it is harder. It is harder. And thank goodness we have higher standards. I mean, I've studied the low standard marriages that people put up with up to the 50s and 60s, where domestic violence was much higher than it is today. Women felt that they had no choice except to obey their husbands. There wasn't any negotiation going on. So on the one hand, we have higher standards for marriage than in the past. And people are willing to say, you know, no, I'm not just going to give in. I'm not going to just take that. But on the other hand, as you say, there are these economic stresses. They take, um, there's the economic stresses of low-income people who can't find enough work or are under constant uh, debt who run out of money every month. Uh, and then there's the other kind of pressures from the two earner families. Uh, but it's interesting that the divorce rates for college-educated couples have been falling for the past 20 or 30 years. Um, those higher expectations of marriage combined with enough economic security to, yes, sometimes we're time I'm pressured, but to outsource some of the stuff that we need uh, has made marriage easier again for them. Well, I wonder too, and and I speak really from some uh, anecdotal experience of of my own friends and people that I know. Uh, many it might be that uh, many college educated couples that that divorce rate is declining simply because in the current economic environment, uh, barring some sort of abuse or intolerable circumstances, getting a divorce is likely to only make your life harder. And people maybe you know with more education, more experience might get that uh, and and refrain simply because it, while you might be uh, freeing yourself up from a partner that you're no longer uh, in love with or want to live with, your life is going to be harder, particularly if you have children and you now have to manage two households. 
Well, that's a perceptive observation, and we see that the divorce rate goes down in sessions. It's a very interesting phenomenon because if a person in a marriage loses a job, that doubles their chance of divorce. But when a lot of other people are losing jobs, those couples, married couples who have not lost their jobs tend to be much more cautious about getting a divorce. Um, but divorce uh, rates have started to tick up a little since the recession. You know, people put it on hold. You know, one, one writer said that, oh, lower divorce is the silver lining of the recession. But that's certainly not necessarily true. It's one thing to head off a divorce by getting help and learning how to um, conduct your relationship better. It's quite another thing when you're just absolutely either angry with each other or cold and contemptuous with each other and you can't uh, get out of it and um so i don't i I don't think that kind of getting married under economic pressure or getting divorced not getting divorced under it is particularly helpful for people and yet there are again a lot of stories of uh marriages that that fell apart during uh 2008 2009 certainly uh foreclosures on homes i mean uh all of the terrible economic impact of that time really was a body blow to the family unit if you think about it absolutely absolutely and in fact one of the things that's interesting is for all these years politicians have been talking about the underclass how these only these poor impoverished communities mostly black they mean you know have these problems with unkempt lawns and and uh crime moving in and stuff turns out that these very um uh, respectable upper class, uh, well built middle, middle class neighborhoods that got hit by the housing uh, crisis started developing exactly the same symptoms. <laughs> I want to ask a little about the impact uh, on children of this new, very pervasive and, and likely to increase uh, new structure of, of uh, couples together, same sex couples. Uh, heterosexual couples living together, having children. Um, how is this shift and, and this and perhaps the accompanying uh, social policy movement in response? How is have you observed that affecting children's well-being? And what are your projections going forward? How can we and we'll be talking to Claire Huntington more about this in the next next half hour, but what would be best for to, to give these families, these quote-unquote non-married families, and do they need extra help? Maybe they don't. Um, how to set them up for success of raising children? Well, the first thing we need to realize is that a, a different uh, family form than the Leave it to Beaver is not necessarily a bad family form. There are obvious challenges in uh, having only one parent uh, instead of two. Uh, cohabiting couples uh, vary from those who have uh, gone into it voluntarily. Uh, they, they know why they're doing it. They're committed to each other. They move on. When we control for education, especially the mother's education and her educational aspirations for her children and income, uh, a British study just did this recently and found no real uh, differences in outcomes between uh, kids raised by cohabiting couples and married couples. Uh, the the research is coming in definitively that kids raised by gay and lesbian families are doing fine. And kids in single-parent families, uh, again, it is a woman's education and income more than the family structure that right. predicts her child's uh, achievement. Uh, nevertheless, these families do have extra stresses, especially in our uh, work-centric economy where it's so hard for 
for people to get uh, time off uh, where they don't have parental leave, where you have, uh, you know, very poor investment in child care. Uh, so I think one of the, the things that's a win-win situation about this is if we did, if we followed the lead of other industrial countries and invested in high-quality child care, in, um, had good family leave policies, including for men, not just women, because that turns out that that's very important in bonding them with their kids, and it pays off for many, many years after they go back to work in, in terms of better child rearing. Uh, I think that we could be fine. And so it's very frustrating to us family researchers when politicians go around, you know, saying, you know, um, oh, why don't you just all go back to the 50s? Well, I can tell you the 50s were not that much better. Um, we, to, child abuse has actually gone down since the 50s. Parents spend more time with their kids, even single mothers uh, and dual earner families spend more time with their kids than stay-at-home married moms did uh, in the in the 50s and 60s. So there's a lot of opportunity to build on. There are some real challenges that we have to get our head out of the sand and meet. It really is a changing landscape. Um, Stephanie Coots, thank you so much for your time. I know you have to run off to something else, and it is early on the West Coast. So um, where can people find out more about your work and your writing and uh, – and um, just remind us of how to get in touch with you. Oh, sure. Um, I have a website, www.stephaniekuntz.com, and my name is C-O-O-N-T-Z. It's not Dean Kuntz. <laughs> I'm often confused. With I the, know. With Prolific writers, both of you. <laughs> Stephanie Kuntz, and thank then, you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you want to find out more, you can go to Stephanie Kuntz's website, www.stephaniekuntz.com. We're going to pause briefly, and then we'll be joined by Claire Huntington, law professor at Fordham University, and continue our conversation.